Okay, so last time I taught, I taught on the doctrine of the atonement, and now we're teaching on the doctrine of salvation, which is also called soteriology, okay? Um, of course, soteriology is very closely tied in with the doctrine of the atonement. You saw in the doctrine of atonement words like, okay, words like ransom and reconciliation and pardon and uh, forgiveness, and you saw an imputation, and you know propitiation. You saw all these words, and this, these things are just these doctrines are so closely tied together. But it is a different doctrine. It is different, and so we're going to talk about this for about the next four weeks. Um, the Bible verse I want to give you as the the main verse for this doctrine we're going to talk about is Acts chapter four and verse twelve. And if you were to turn there, you'd see it's actually talking about Jesus right before it says, uh, it says this in verse 12. Uh, it says in verse 10, it talks about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So obviously, the name that's talking about in Acts 4.12 is the name of Jesus. It says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is that name. Jesus, Yeshua, is the name of Jesus. He's the name by which we have salvation. Okay, so teriology. You see there in your first blank there is the, is the word. comes from the Greek word soteria. I want you to know. Soteria, soteriology. Uh, it's, soteria simply means salvation. That's what it means. And you have that uh, you know, two lines of blanks there, so you can put in whatever you want for what I'm going to say about soteria. But it simply means salvation. It doesn't always mean in the eternal sense. It can mean in the temporal sense of deliverance or preservation. And we'll go through some verses, but right off the bat, what comes to mind is Peter when he's walking on water. And all of a sudden he starts to sink. He says, save me, Lord. Now, is he talking about eternal salvation there? No, he's talking about temporal salvation. It's the same word being used. So the context of the scripture will determine in what way soteria is being used um, in each verse. So it can refer to temporal deliverance or preservation. We can also refer to eternal deliverance or preservation. And we'll go through some scriptures containing this word later on. Okay, so in this doctrine of salvation, there's four things we're going to go through. One is initial salvation. You see that right there. Number two is final salvation. You see the next one is final salvation. Number three is probation. I'm going to tell you what those mean here in a minute. And then lastly, after we've gone through these three, obviously today will be about initial salvation, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what is work salvation. So oftentimes, if you believe in holiness, you believe in obedience, and that's required of God uh, from you, that people will accuse you of work salvation. So we're going to talk about, in the final week of me teaching on this, this doctrine, what work salvation actually is. And so when someone accuses you of work salvation because you're talking about holiness and obedience to God, you can show them what work salvation is from the Scriptures. Okay? So initial salvation. That is the moment in which the sinner forsakes all of their sin and puts their complete faith, their complete trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So it's the moment when the sinner forsakes all of their sin, everything they know is wrong, they forsake it, everything they know they should be doing, they begin to start doing, 
And they put all their faith, their complete trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, initial salvation is also called in, in our you know, Christianity speech, it's called being born again. It's also called uh, being converted. Uh, Acts 3.19 comes to mind. Repent and be converted. Your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Most people call this initial salvation, well, when did you get saved? That's what they'll say. When did you get saved? And that's what they're referring to. They're referring to initial salvation. And that's the one we're going to focus on the most today. But let me give you a definition for the other two as well. Final salvation. That is when the saint of God perseveres in the faith, living holy until the end. It's when the saint of God perseveres in the faith, living holy until the end. Now, the word end can mean two different things here. It can mean when the person dies, or it can mean when Christ returns. Because let's face it, there are going to be some people who never physically die. What a blessing that would be. Now, of course, they must go through many serious tribulations to get to that point of having that blessing of never dying physically. They have to go through seven years of the Antichrist, three and a half years of him trying to force the mark of the beast upon people, persecuting the saints, chasing after the saints. Possibly, if you're one of the ones that gets caught by him, torture, torment. So, for someone to never die, they have to go through a lot. Most people will die, physically. But, final salvation is when the saint of God perseveres to the end, living holy until the end. This can be when the saint dies in the faith or when Christ comes back and the saint is still in the faith. Okay, probation. Probation is the period of time that is between initial salvation and final salvation. The period of time is between initial salvation and final salvation. Now during this probationary period, and we're going to go through a timeline here in a second to kind of give you a visual picture of this. During this probationary period, the person who went through initial salvation, hasn't made it to final salvation yet, can go through many periods of time when they're in danger of losing their salvation. They're in danger. And of course we know losing salvation is just a, a, a you know, cliche people use to describe what the Bible says is departing from the faith, falling away, or being cut off. Okay, no, one, no one's salvation falls out of their pocket like you lose some keys. Okay, that's not the way it works. And the I looked up this morning the dictionary definition of this, and I thought it was pretty good. It says the act of suspending the sentence of a person guilty of crimes, in on the promise of good behavior. I think that really sums it up good. Let me give it to you again. The act of suspending the sentence of a person guilty of crimes. On the promise of good behavior. That's a good definition for probation. So let's face it, initial salvation, you deserve, before you get saved, even after you get saved, you deserve hell. You deserve God's punishment, God's justice for being a criminal in his universe. And in his, his mercy, 
Because you've forsaken it, that's the promise of good behavior, you've forsaken your sins, you've trusted in Christ, he has suspended that sentence. We know through looking at the the parable of the unmerciful servant that he can reestablish that sentence and and make you guilty of those crimes again. And that's the same way it works in the court of law. I mean, I, I've had my sister, she's been in jail many, many times. She's been on probation many times. When I was my son, Matthew, what, my son, my nephew Matthew was living here. He was like a son to me. My, my, my nephew Matthew was living here with me. Um, he was doing it because my, my sister, she was in jail and she got a jail. And if she would have had a problem during that period of time before we brought him back to her, she would have went to jail for five years. So she had part of her sentence suspended on the promise of good behavior. And she met that promise of good behavior. Therefore, there's no threat of that sentence anymore. Okay, because she made it to the end of that period of time where the sentence has been suspended. Now, for us, the sentence is suspended as long as you live, as long as you're in the faith. But if you don't persevere to the end, that sentence is put back on top of you. Okay? So go to that timeline there at the bottom right there, underneath probation. Sure. They have to admit it, yes. They have to admit it. I'm mm-hmm. talking about somebody can put in jail. Yeah, they can't claim they can't continue to claim innocence. Right. Otherwise the court leaves them in jail. They don't give them parole or probation. It's what you see with like Ken Hoven, for example. He's not one there's another preacher who we knew from Pennsylvania who wasn't willing to admit his crimes, and he finally admitted it and they let him out. Okay, so the salvation timeline there, let's just give you a scenario. Let's say there's a guy named Billy Bob. Okay? At that first little notch there, I want you to put uh birth. Okay, that first little uh, tick there you see. On the last one, all the way on the right-hand side, put death. Okay, and let's just say Billy Bob lives 75 years. That's the average uh, lifespan of a human being these days. Now that first tick you see after birth, uh, we're going to call that salvation, initial salvation. Okay. That's when Billy Bob gets saved. And we're going to say he got saved at 10 years old. 10 years old. Okay? And then that next tick, we're going to say that represents um, 20 years old. Okay? That second tick you see there. Now, 20 years old, Billy Bob senses a calling to preach the gospel, to be a missionary and Africa. God has called him to Africa. And he's considering it, he's praying about it, but for some reason, he shies away from it. And against his father's recommendation, against the, uh, you know, everyone's counsel to him, who's been Christians for a long time, don't go to college, don't go to that uh, secular college there, it's just full of sin. Of course, you know, this is, you know, much later from now. We're imagining Billy Bob is 10 years old right now. And so, 10 years from now, I can't imagine how bad the university is going to be. But at 20 years old, he, he has a calling to, uh, to, you know, go to the mission field. And he's considering it. And then at, um, let me see the next tick there. At 
22 years old, he decides to go to college anyway. Against everyone's counsel. He wants to get a degree and make lots of money. And, and of course, while he's there, the whole system is anti-Christ. The whole system is against Christianity. He may have even heard some campus preachers on the campus a couple of times. But he joined in the mocking. And, of course, Billy Bob, because he's at school, he's spending so much time studying, on his, getting his degree. He kind of puts aside his Bible study, puts aside his prayer time, puts aside witnessing. He even doesn't make it to fellowship on Sundays anymore. He begins to kind of fall away from the faith slowly but surely. He's just falling away. Because he's not, uh, he's neglecting his great salvation. So he's falling away. And see that next tick, the last tick we have on there, we're going to make that 30 years old. And we're going to say at 30 years old, he's partying with his friends. You know, he's full-blown in the sin now. It's not just a matter of neglecting Bible study and prayer and witnessing and fellowship. He's full-blown in sin now. He's getting drunk, something he had never done before because he's raised in a Christian household. He's fornicating, cussing, taking God's name in vain. Now, if Billy Bob were to die at this point in time, he would go to hell. Now, does Billy Bob know when he's going to die? We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when anyone else is going to die unless God, by special revelation, reveals it to us. And so Billy Bob's in danger. He's in great danger. He was in danger a long time ago when he started going to college like he shouldn't have against all the counsel he was given by many godly people. But at that last tick at 30 years old, he's partying with his friends. He's at uh, some kind of special event. Let's call it Belshare. And he hears some hellfire preachers. He, he senses the conviction of the Holy Spirit again. And he forsakes all of his sin. Once again. He gets right with God once again. And he revisits his old calling that God gave him at 30 years old. Now, he's right with God again. But can he reverse all those years he wasted? All those people he could have influenced to the kingdom? All those scars he has from all that sin he engaged in? All that time he played around with his own soul, played around with his own salvation, neglecting Jesus Christ who shed his blood for them on the, him on the cross. He can't get those years back. I look back upon my years. I can't get them back. I can't get them back. But praise the Lord for the rest of his 45 years, from 30 to 75, he lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes and becomes a missionary to Africa like he was called to in the first place when he was 20 years old. But it took him 10 years to get to that point where he's finally willing to submit himself to God and to God's will for his life and finally do what God told him to do. What a waste of time. And even within those 45 years, there may be some times that Billy Bob may have sinned, but he repented immediately, right away. He dealt with it right away. He didn't play around with it like he did before. He didn't give himself bad company, which corrupts good habits like he did before. He awoke unto righteous and he said, I'm not going to sin anymore. That's what he said. For the last 45 years of Billy Bob's life, he lived for the glory of God. And so what you see here in this timeline is a 
is an explanation of initial salvation, final salvation, and probation. All throughout his, when he became 10 to when he was 30, well, from 10 to 20, he was good to go. He was living for Jesus Christ. He was living a holy life. But from 22 to 30, actually really from 20, because he started to neglect the calling of God, which is a sin. If God calls you to go somewhere and you don't go there, that's a sin. Okay, But he got more and more grosser and grosser sin. And for those 10 years, he was in danger during his probationary period because he wasn't holding up to his promise of good behavior. He was neglecting it this commitment he made to Jesus Christ. But God had mercy on him. God gave him time to repent. But was he guaranteed that time? Was he guaranteed that? Couldn't he have died at 25? Couldn't he have died at 28? Couldn't he have died this day after he decided to start disobeying Jesus Christ? Why should never play around with sin? It'll kill you. Okay, so let's move on to words that describe, used to describe initial salvation. The first word you see there is a word we already talked about. It's called soteria. Okay? And you already know what that means, but I'll give it to you again. It means deliverance, preservation, salvation. Deliverance, preservation, salvation. And I'll give you some examples in the scripture of it being used in a temporal sense. And examples in Scripture are being used in an eternal sense. So soteria means deliverance, preservation, salvation. So there's some temporal, Acts chapter 7 and verse 25. And this is uh, Stephen talking about Moses. And it says, For Moses supposed that his brethren, the Jewish Israelites, would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The word deliver there is soteria. Deliver them from what? The Egyptians. That's a natural deliverance. Not an eternal. It's a temporal deliverance. Not an eternal deliverance. So we see soteria used in a, in a natural sense. I mean, if you see someone drowning out in the ocean and you're a lifeguard, you're going to go save them. But in the process, I don't think you're preaching salvation to them while you're dragging them out of the water or when you're swimming out to them. Maybe when you're done, you might talk to them about it. But uh, that's we see salvation there. Okay, Acts 27 and verse 34. And this is uh, Paul on the, the boat, the shipwreck. And it says... Um, Therefore, this is Paul talking to the, the shipmates here, giving them instructions on how they can survive this storm. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival. There's Soteria right there. It says, not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. So eating, eating physical food doesn't save you eternally, but it can save you temporally. Eventually, you need to eat food again. Okay. And then we have uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Hebrews 11 and verse 7 is the you know, the hall of faith. You see, this is talking about Noah. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving, soteria, of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So we see 
Uh, his family was saved, his whole household was saved, but not from eternal damnation, from the water, from the floodwaters, which was physical destruction. Now, of course, I'd probably say that everybody who died in that flood went to is going to be in the lake of fire. Um, but that's beside the point. This is talking about physical, temporal salvation here. Okay, let's look at some eternal salvation ones. Let's see how it's used. Luke chapter one and verse twenty-seven. Luke one and verse seventy-seven. I'm sorry. Luke one seventy-seven. This is talking about the. Uh, this is the prophecy of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, and this is talking about John the Baptist. Verse seventy-seven of Luke one, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Maybe that's talking about Jesus Christ, actually. But anyway, the point is, uh, this is talking about eternal salvation, because look what's combined with it, the second part of verse 77, remission of their sins. And what does someone need for salvation? Remission or forgiveness of sins. And not holding your sins against you any longer. Uh, Luke 19, 19. Or 19, 9, I'm sorry. Luke 19, 9. This is Zacchaeus' house, <coughs> and Zacchaeus in verse 8 uh, just got done repenting with restitution. And if someone truly repents, guess what? They'll attempt to make restitution. And Luke 19.9 says, And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we have in Romans 1.16. Paul says that, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10. It says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we see salvation comes through belief and confession there. And then Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So they heard the word of truth, they trusted in the gospel of their salvation, and him also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see the response to trusting and putting your faith in the gospel of your salvation is being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, and then we have 2 Corinthians 6.2. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Yes, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So what's what's required? Godly sorrow, which produces repentance, and that goes to salvation. Okay? And then Jude, verse 3. There's no chapters in Jude, obviously. Jude, verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you, 
concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we see soteria can be used in a temporal sense, an eternal sense, and by looking at these different scriptures where uh, it's used in an eternal sense, we can see certain things that are required. It's required to hear the truth. It's required for you to believe in and trust the truth. It's required for you to repent uh, and have godly sorrow in order for you to have salvation. Okay? All right, the next word. Exozo. That's number two on there. Exozo. Uh, it's number two there. Uh, I would, if you're talking about a transliteration spelling, E K S O Z O, exozo. And it means to keep safe from injury in perilous circumstance. To keep safe from injury in perilous circumstance. To bring safely. To bring safely. All right, let's look at some temporal uses of this word, exozo, which is normally translated as saved. Okay. Yeah, one is usually translated as salvation, as you saw, or deliverance. Uh, number two is normally translated as saved. Okay. So we'll go to Matthew 8.25 first. Look at some temporal uses of this word. Same thing with this word. You have to let the context determine uh, what it's talking about. Matthew 8.25. Uh, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so the boat was covered with the waves. Uh, so that's verse 24, I'm sorry, I'm just giving you context. Covered with the waves, but he was asleep, talking about Jesus. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Is that the same kind of perishing that Luke 13, 3 is talking about? Is that the same kind of perishing that John 3, 16 is talking about? No, the same kind of perishing at all. It's talking about perishing in a physical, a temporal sense. And here we have it being used, exozo being used in a temporal sense as well. Matthew 9, 21. This is the woman who's been bleeding. Or no. No, it's not the woman who's been bleeding. I'm sorry. No, it is. It is the woman who's been bleeding. Okay. Uh, uh, Matthew 9, 20. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only may touch his garment, I shall be made well. He's talking about salvation in an eternal sense there. He's talking about being made well so she wouldn't bleed anymore. So she wouldn't bleed anymore. That's what he's talking about there. And there's one more that in the temporal sense, Matthew 14 and verse 20. I think that's a, I got to get a wrong reference there. Type it down wrong. Okay, let's go to the eternal sense here. Matthew one twenty one. This is the angel talking to Mary, and he says to her, or talking to Joseph, I'm sorry, and he says to says to him, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now we know it's talking about eternal sense here, because what it says, save them from their sins. Not saving from the Romans, not saving from a flow of blood, not saving from a, a tempest, but saving from their sins. Okay? And then Matthew 18.11. So what does Jesus save people from? Their sins. Matthew 18.11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 
So he's not come to save that which was found, and this goes back to John's point before, that you must realize you are lost before you can be found. You must admit that. Let me go to Mark 16 and verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So belief is required. And of course, I'm going to touch on this a little more in a little bit here, but uh, we see baptism here. And I, I submit to you that baptism, every time we see a preaching on salvation in the book of Acts, anytime someone asks what must I do to be saved, baptism is included in it. Does that mean that water saves you? Of course not. Does it mean that there's some kind of uh, special powers in the water? Of course not. But what it does mean is that in our modern society, you know what's taking place at baptism? The sinner's prayer. Asking Jesus into your heart. Now, I'm not by any means saying that someone can't be saved by asking Jesus into their heart, or by saying the sinner's prayer, but that's not the normal way someone gets saved. It's not what God never says to do that. God never says to pray a prayer. God says, repent, believe, and be baptized. That's what he says to do. Okay? So if you believe, you'll be saved. And of course, you're, God requires you to be baptized. No reason to wait around for it. Luke chapter 8 and verse 12. This is the parable of the sower, and Jesus is explaining it to them. And in Luke 12 and verse 12, or Luke 8 and verse 12, I'm sorry, he says, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then a devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Well, they had a hard heart. The ground wasn't properly prepared for the soil of the gospel, or for the seed of the gospel. And then we see in Acts 2 and 21. But I'll tell you this, that, that scripture goes to tell you, but if you hear the word of God, don't play around with it. The devil will come and steal it. He doesn't want you to believe and be saved. He wants you to go to hell. Acts 2.21 It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, some people, mostly antinomian, independent, fundamental Baptists, will say, look, all that's required for you to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord. And of course, some other verses we'll get to here in a second and say, all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, there's no repentance mentioned there, right? I don't see repentance mentioned there, or in Romans 10, 9, which we'll see in a second. But, isn't it implied by the word Lord being there? I mean, if someone is your Lord, aren't you going to obey them? And if you don't obey them, are they really your Lord? No, so that's obviously implied. You're calling upon the name of the Lord. You shall be saved. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. And this is after Peter gets done preaching this message on the day of Pentecost. And they're asking him what they must do to be saved. And we see in Acts 2.40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. From. So you got to come out of it. Come out of this perversity. Acts 2.47. 
Many, 3,000 got saved that day, and they're continuing in steadfasting the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. So the Lord adds to the church. We just do what he calls to do. We don't concern ourselves primarily with numbers. Numbers, as, as many uh, visible churches do these, in this day and age, where they want big places and lots of people, and they associate lots of people means we're doing something right. Lots of people means we're successful. You know where lots of people are on? The broad road. There are very few are? The narrow road. Lots of people does not mean you're doing everything right, but hey, 3,000 got saved that day. That's a lot of people. Okay, so numbers don't determine effectiveness or lack of effectiveness, but in this day and age, day of apostasy, if someone has lots of people following them, I would lean towards they're doing something wrong. I would say, well, what's, what's going on here? Why do they have, why do they have 30,000 people in a former basketball arena every Sunday? Why? What is he saying? What is she saying, maybe even? What, whose ears or whose ears is he or she tickling? Okay? But God adds to the church. Acts 16. In verse 30. The Philippian jailer. You know, that God shook the, the jail. And of course, all the, all the people who were in there could have ran away. Notice the authority Paul had there to tell everybody to stay in their jail cells and they just obeyed him. Amazing. He must have a lot of authority in Christ to say something like that for them just to, just to say, okay, yeah, we'll stay in our jail cells. Um, in Acts 16 and verse 30, the Philippian jailer in verse 29, uh, he called for a light, ran in to where Paul was, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. You think he's repentive? You think he's contrite and broken over his sin? Oh, yeah, I think he is. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now, it's not saying here that by this Philippian jailer believing that his whole household will be saved by his belief. He's saying, you and your whole household can believe and be saved just like you can believe and be saved. And then verse 32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now you see, the, see how he changed there? What did he do? He took care of the prison. He washed their stripes. He's willing to humble himself as the jailer to wash a prisoner's stripes. And immediately what happened? He and all his family said the sinner's prayer. <laughs> he and all his family exegesed into their heart that God shaped hole in their heart. No, he and his family were baptized. That's what it says. And then we see in Romans 10.9, this other scripture I was talking about, and people like to quote this in the open air, if you're preaching on holiness and you have to repent and they'll accuse you of work salvation, they'll start quoting Romans 10.9 and 10. And I already gave you verse 10, which was Soterios found in there, now we see exozo uh, found in Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. See the word Lord there? Who are you confessing with your mouth? The Savior Jesus or the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So people will say, look, it's just a mental belief, an intellectual ascension to say, well, I confess the Lord Jesus, and that's all they have to say. And they believe in their heart. They'll have believe. No, that's not what it's saying here. 
But you see the word exozo there, salvation. And at the end of verse 9, they're saved. Ephesians 2.8. Most people know this one. People who believe in a antinomian version of grace, they'll, they'll quote this verse, and I'm sure we'll touch on this verse when we go to the fourth teaching in the series about work salvation. It says, for by grace you have been saved. You see how it's, you've been saved, so you are saved. It was in the past tense. You've been saved through faith. So what were they saved through? Faith. So you can, I want you to imagine, you know, if we were to put the, uh, a water well on top of the hill, okay, and we want to get the water to a house, what do you have to lay down? Pipes. So they have salvation over here. Faith is the pipes that bring salvation to your heart and to your soul. Faith. It has to be the right kind of faith, of course, but faith will bring it to you. Okay? So it's through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God. Okay, so you, for you have been saved. See, I was talking about past tense. And then when we go to the final salvation, we'll see lots of scriptures talk about a future salvation, and it's being t- uh, said that to uh, a Christian. A lot of cases where Paul or Peter or John is talking to a Christian or a current believer, and they're saying, you will be saved. He's talking about a future salvation. So there is a sense of an initial salvation, but also a future salvation, which is final salvation. Okay? And then 1 Timothy 2.4. Who desires, well, let's read in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he goes on to talk about Christ being a mediator between God and men and being a ransom, which we know it's all referring to salvation. This is salvation. This is being saved in an eternal sense here. He wants all to be saved. He wants all to have initial salvation. And then we have James one twenty one. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Able to save your soul. Okay, so you see some eternal uh, uses of this word, exozo, and some temporal uses. Now let's go to the last word here. Dekai-a-o. Dekai-a-o. Uh, D-I-K-A-I-O-O-E. That's what I would say. Because you gotta, you gotta have a, the second to last syllable is a short O, and the last syllable is a long O. The Kai-A-O. Okay. You like that, Dan? What's that? Uh, oh, what does it translate as? It's translated as justification. Are being justified. And let me just give you the definition of that word. Uh, to render a favorable verdict. To render a favorable verdict. To vindicate. <laughs> to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer considered to be pertinent or valid. 
to cause someone to be released from personal institutional claims that are no longer considered to be pertinent or valid. To make free or pure. To make free or, or pure. To treat as just. To treat as just. So you see in this word, there's a person who has, they're under sentence for something. And somehow, a favorable verdict is being rendered. And these institutional or personal claims are no longer considered valid or pertinent. They're made free, they're made pure, they're treated as if they are just. Okay? Now, a lot of times, when we think the word justified or justify, we think about it in a negative sense. We think, oh, that guy's just trying to justify himself. You know, we think, well, he's just, he's trying to make an excuse for himself. That's kind of the way we use that word. But he's trying to get away with something. Okay, that's what we, that's why we usually use the word justify. And in this sense, the person does get away from what they deserve. Uh, they are set free. They are treated as if they hadn't done the crime in the first place. And remember, as you go back to the, the atonement study, we see that in all these different words we've looked at. I was going to talk about justification then as well, but I wanted to wait for this teaching to talk about it here. Though we see in imputation, we see in holasterion, we see in, you know, in ransom, uh, and all these words went through atonement, they all kind of mean the same thing. That God's laying aside the punishment. The punishment doesn't disappear. He just lays it aside. There's only one scripture I could find that used it in a temporal sense. That's Matthew eleven nineteen. Matthew 11 and verse 19. For the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. We see justification used not in an eternal sense there, but a temporal sense that wisdom uh, is shown by her children, by what comes from it. And we know the fruit that Jesus Christ had was good. It was good fruit. Okay, let's look at some eternal uses of this word. Romans 3.26. This is a constant theme throughout Romans 3 and 4, and also through Galatians, all throughout Galatians, if you want to study this term a little more. Romans 3.26 says, uh, talking about God here, to demonstrate at the present time, talking about the past, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see the kaya o used in justifier there. He's justifying somebody. And how is someone justified? Verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Justification is by faith. We see it in verse 26. And faith in what? The propitiation of Jesus' blood. Okay? And then in uh, Romans 3.28 that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, when we get to the last teaching on this uh, this series, we'll talk about what it means to be the deeds of the law, what that actually means. If, if Paul there is talking about the 
Mosaic law, we're talking about the moral law, we'll talk about that more later. But what you need to concentrate right now is that you're justified by faith. Okay? And then Romans uh, Romans, uh, 3.30 says, Since there is one God, he will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith. So justification is by faith. So the, the very moment in time, this is initial salvation, once again, so we're talking about this whole time, the moment in time that you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, at that very moment you become a Christian. And how does God respond to that? Well, he gives you the Holy Spirit. He cleanses your mind, he cleanses your heart, he cleanses your conscience, and he changes you in that sense. But there's a submission to him. There's a willingness to to receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. There's a humility there. Okay? But it's through faith. And I would agree with uh, one of the solos of the the Reformation. um, We're saved through faith. We're saved through faith. And as long as we're defining what kind of faith that is. It's not just mental ascension. Not just intellectual belief, like believing 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's not what it's like. not that kind of faith. It's a different kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that uh, you're willing to die for. You know, if you if you uh, really trusted in a parachute rigger and his abilities to rig a parachute, you'd be willing to jump out of a plane from ten thousand feet up with that on your back. That's that's true trust. You can say it with your mouth. Ah, I trust you. you're a great rigger, man. You give him a pat on the back. You you know encourage him. You edify him, and then you won't put it on. Do you really mean it? You don't really mean it. You don't really mean it. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Situation with... uh, Paul having to rebuke Peter and Barnabas and all the other Jews who came to Galatia. And he says in verse 16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So you see the Kyo three times in that one verse. It's always by faith, by faith. Now, if you read this through the eyes of Martin Luther, you might come away with an antinomian version of Christianity, that all you have to do is believe, and you can sin all you want, and you're still okay with God. You could do that. But you would not be accurate. You would not be accurate. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all the nations, shall be blessed. So justify the Gentiles by faith. And it goes on. You know, I, I would really encourage you, if you really want to understand Galatians, which is a very difficult, probably one of the most difficult books in the, all of the Testament to understand, maybe besides Revelation, um, is to read it through over and over and over again. You know, read it once a day for a couple weeks. And you'll actually see what Paul is saying there. Instead of just reading a chapter at a time or a couple of verses at a time, or however many verses you, you read in your devotional time, but reading it all the way through. And it won't take that long. It's only 
It's only six chapters. I mean, in my in my Bible, it's one, two, three, four pages. That shouldn't take very long. You, know, you can play you can play a game of spades and read four pages of the Bible. You can play a game of eyeball and read four pages of the Bible. You can be on Facebook for half an hour and read four pages of the Bible. Doesn't take very long. And so we see it's used in an eternal sense and a temporal sense here, dekaiao, to render a favorable verdict as being justified, being giving right standing with God, because we've all sinned in the past. We all have. There's no way getting around that. Our record doesn't go away. It's still there. God knows about it. He doesn't cease to be omniscient. He doesn't cease to know about your record, and you become more knowledgeable about your record and your past than he does. It's still there, but he, he justifies you, makes you right in his sight through Jesus Christ. And it's by faith, but it must be the right kind of faith. It must be the right kind of faith. Now I want to talk about how do you know you have experienced initial salvation. Now I'm not going to talk about how do you know you're doing well in probationary period. I'm not going to talk about how you know you're ready for final salvation if you were to die right now. What I'm talking about right now is if you ever have experienced initial salvation. Ever. And there's some ways you can know. Number one, true repentance. Has there ever been a time in your life that you can remember when you forsook all known sin and put your complete faith and trust in Jesus? Has there ever been a time, just think back, I'm not asking you to give me an exact day. I can't give you the exact day of my salvation. I can give you the month and the year. Has there ever been a time, examine your own heart. You know this better than anyone else will know this. Has there ever been a time in your life that you can remember when you forsook all known sin, not holding anything back, not holding on to anything, but forsook all known sin and put your complete trust in Jesus? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If there hasn't been a point in time that you can remember that you forsook all known sin and put your complete trust in Jesus, then you don't have that pardon. You don't have that mercy. But if there has, praise the Lord. You, you were saved. You did, you did get initial salvation. Now, whether you're still, whether you're still on the road to salvation right now is yet to be seen. We'll talk about that next week. But the question now is, have you ever forsaken all sin? And trusted in Jesus. James 4 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. So, true repentance. It's a requirement. Number two, have you been born again? Now, of course, if you truly do repent and trust in Jesus, that's the response God will give to your true repentance, your true faith. And whether you've been born again or not will tell you whether God saw your repentance and faith as true and genuine and legit. Because you may be deceived. You know, Matthew 7 says, Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and this in your name? 
And he'll say, away from you, evildoers, I never knew you. So there's some people who are deceived. They think they know Jesus, think they've been saved, think they've experienced initial salvation, but they never have. And Jesus says there will be many who will be that way. One of the most dangerous things in Christianity is self-delusion. Self-delusion. It's, it's, it's abounding in this day and age. Constantly having to deal with people on college campuses and on the streets who think they're Christians when they're not. Not even close. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, it's not even like, oh, they might just be an immature Christian, might just be a new Christian, maybe they're just being deceived. No, it's not even close. For a lot of them. So have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit ever come to live inside of you? Have you been born again, born from above? Jesus said in John 3, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. He will not see the kingdom of God. Don't let that be you, friends. Romans 8, 16, Paul says, the Spirit of God testifies within us that we are children of God. It cries out, Abba, Father, that you've been adopted. So when someone asks me, well, I'll go through some of these steps, how do they know they're saved? I'll ask them, are you born again? Well, yeah, I think so. Well, you'll know it. There's no, I think so. You will know it. The Spirit of God will testify within you that you're a child of God. No one can tell you that. No one can convince you of that. No one can persuade you of that. You just have to know it. So have you been born again? Number three, life transformation. Life transformation. I'm not even talking about right now in the present. I'm talking about this point in time where you say, I did truly repent. I do believe I was born again. How, what, what happened to your life after that? Did your life change at all? Did you have a great desire to pray to God, to spend alone time with Him? I mean, think back, for all you people who are married, think back to the time when you first met your spouse. You just wanted to spend all day with them. I mean, for months, I saw my future wife every single day. We were doing nothing immoral. We were in groups of people in public. But I saw her every day and I couldn't wait to spend more time with her. And praise the Lord, it's still that way. It's still that way. But we're talking about in the past. Did, did, did you have a great desire to pray and spend time with God? Did you, did you want to read the Bible? Not because your mom or dad told you you have to, because Bible study forced you, or because the preacher said, you got to do devotionals every day. Because you wanted to. You see, when it comes to someone getting born again, it changes the wanter inside of you. You no longer want to sin. You no longer want to live selfish lives. You want to glorify Him in everything you do. You want nothing to do with sin. He changes the wanter. Did you have a great desire to tell the lost the truth? Did you become selfless or did you remain selfish? Did you become selfless or did you remain selfish? Now, for some people, this third step, life transformation, will be different, will be different degrees. Some people weren't as wicked. My son gets saved at six and a half years old. His transformation is not going to be as drastic as mine was at 19. And I was a filthy, rotten sinner. Not going to be the same. Uh, you know, my, my stepfather, who's, you know, he claims to be a Christian. I think he did get saved at one point. I'm not sure if he still is or not. 
But he was at one point in time. I truly believe that. And uh, he's someone who you think is a good guy. I mean, he did just about everything right, it seemed like. He was a very selfless person. And so it's going to be different degrees for each person, but there should be transformation there. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. All has become new. Romans 6, 6 through 7. This is one of our new memory verses in my household for my children. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified. What happens when someone gets crucified? It dies. The old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And Jesus defines what slave of sin is in John 8. Committing sin is slave to sin. If you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And you know what? That word freed there in verse 7? That's the word dekaio. That's what it is there. He's been freed from it. Old man crucified. Dead. Now, I'm going to tell you this. As a Christian, it doesn't mean the old man won't try to get off the cross. It doesn't mean he won't try to rise up from the dead and get you to go back to that lifestyle. But that's what you do when you initially get saved. You say, you know what? You're going on the cross, buddy. You're going to die. I don't want you around anymore. I don't want to hang around with you. I'm hanging around with someone else now. So there's life transformation. Number four. What were your motives for coming to Christ? Motives for coming to Christ. Why did you come to Christ? Was it only because you feared hell and didn't want to go there? Was it only because you wanted to go to the streets of gold instead of the flames? Was it because your uh, people around you who you hung out with the most, your friends and family, they were becoming Christians and you wanted to be part of the group, a part of the clique? Was it because it was, you were pressured by someone in your life? And you just gave in the pressure. Or did you come to Christ because God deserved your life and you wanted to give all to Him? You wanted to give all of it to Him. Not just some of it. Because He doesn't want some of it. He wants all of it. Or He'll have none of it. So we've seen true repentance, being born again, life transition, motives for coming. Number five, baptism. Have you been baptized since then? If so, what are you waiting for? If not, what are you waiting for? Let me give you some scriptures that, that where people ask questions and baptism is always included. Now, once again, I'm not saying I don't believe in baptismal regeneration, no powers in the water. And if someone does not know about baptism, they're ignorant of it, God doesn't hold that against them. They can still be saved. Some people, like the, the Church of Christ people, will say, well, the, the formula for salvation is repent, belief, and baptism. And I say, if you can find any example in Scripture where any of those are taken out, then it doesn't, it's not a requirement. It's not a part of the formula. And we see examples like Cornelius. He received the Holy Spirit before he got baptized. 
And we've seen today that like Ephesians 1.13, that when you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay? So belief. That's what we see in this situation of Cornelius. He's an example of what Ephesians 1.13 is talking about. But Acts 2.38, in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, talking about the crowd, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. It said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What a great question that is. I wish sinners would ask me that more often. Then Peter said to them, Repent! Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you got baptized as a baby, that does not count. If you got baptized before you truly got converted, because you're what people would call a false conversion, it didn't count. Baptism is always either congruent with the same time as salvation or after salvation. Baptism before salvation just makes you a wet sinner. That's all it does. It doesn't help you one bit. You might as well take a bath with a bathing suit on. Acts 2.41 And those who gladly received his word were baptized. See, there's a receiving of the word, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And they got baptized. 3,000 of them that day. Acts 8.36 The Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 35 Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And look at this. Is Philip trying to persuade him? The eunuch said, See? Water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, Listen to this. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See? Belief preceded baptism. And he wouldn't baptize him unless he knew... A little bit of examination going on here. Call what we do in this fellowship. A little bit. Of, so he, he knew, he believed, and he said, okay, I'll baptize you. But the eunuch wanted it. He didn't say, oh, it's going to be embarrassing. You know, get wet in front of everybody. I'll just wait around to the quarterly baptism three months from now. And Philip didn't say, hey, listen, man, just come to our fellowship, you know, three months from now. We're going to baptize a bunch of people at the same time. You can just get baptized then. What would that have told him? It would have told him, oh, baptism is not necessary. No big deal. You can get to it later. And it would have told him obedience isn't required immediately. It's required whenever you feel like doing it. But baptism is required immediately if you are genuinely and truly saved. Acts 10.47 Here we have Peter preaching to Cornelius' household. We see in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So what did Peter command them to do? Once he knew they were saved? 
to be baptized. And that's what I command you to do. If you've gone through these steps right here in verses and, and numbers one through four, and you're clear on numbers one through four, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be baptized. There's no reason to wait. If you genuinely have been saved. Now, if you genuinely have not been saved, you need to examine yourself and you need to get right with God. You need to stop playing around with your soul. You need to not be that person who had the hard ground and the devil came and snatched away that seed. You need to not be that person who I talked about earlier on this timeline who decided to, well, I'm going to go live the way I want to live. And end up in hell in the end. You need to be that person who understands that today is a day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow, right? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you've heard the gospel truth and you understand, and I'm talking about children or babies, but you understand the gospel truth and you're not submitting to it, you are in the probationary period right now and you're failing miserably. You haven't even experienced initial salvation yet. But you know the truth, you've heard it, and you refuse to submit to it. What a dangerous place it is to be in, friends. What a dangerous place it is to be in. Doesn't Jesus Christ deserve your life? Doesn't he deserve you forsaking your sins? Doesn't he deserve you putting your complete faith and trust in him? Weren't you bought at a price like Brother Kevin talked about earlier? You're bought at a price. You don't belong to yourself. That's just not talking about believers there. We see in, in Peter that even false teachers were bought by his blood. You don't belong to yourself. And let's face it, you're not qualified to run your life. I know I'm not qualified to run my life. But God is. Okay, so in the doctrine of soteriology, we see that it's talking about salvation. We went through initial salvation today. Talked about final salvation and probation. And we saw these three words that I decided to focus on. Soteria, exozo, and dikaio. And we see, as I go through the study and reaffirm these things to myself, it just goes right along with this teaching of the atonement that I gave, you know, three or four weeks ago. Okay, let's open it up to to questions or objections or things people want to add. Anybody? Hello, John? Yeah, you had mentioned uh, that all were lost in the flood and uh, I suppose you didn't need children, or did you need children? Oh, no, children wouldn't, no, they definitely wouldn't be included in that, of course. Children wouldn't be sinners. We know that from other scriptures. I mean, people will say, according from Genesis 6, that, you know, every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually, but we know there's exceptions to that. We know Noah's an exception to that. We know his family's an exception to that, because God calls Noah perfect in his generations. Uh, a just man who walked with God. And uh, obviously children are not included. That, that's probably actually, I mean, I would, I would consider that actually an act of mercy upon God uh, when it comes to children, uh, whether it's during the flood or during the the siege in the Canaan. Um, I would think that's an act of mercy upon God because these children would have grown up and become just like their parents. They would have been wicked sinners. So, But, you know, people will, will have a problem with that. Oftentimes atheists say, well, your God, he, he likes to... Uh, Wipe out whole groups of people, and well, are you saying it's wrong to wipe out whole groups of people? Well, where are you getting that from? If you're an atheist, where are you getting right and wrong from? 
You see, you have to believe in God to have right or wrong. And they're rejecting God, so they have no standard of right and wrong. So they have no way, no, no way to call anyone right or wrong for any, any reason because they have no standard. But besides all that, doesn't God have the right to take life as he's given life? We're not even talking about people will try to say that a woman has the right to take her baby's life. She didn't give that baby life. All she did was donate an egg. That's all she did. And God's the one who's producing him inside of her because he made her that way. She's not consciously thinking about, I'm going to make some eggs today. She's not doing that. It's just a natural thing that happened because God created her that way. And the Bible says God knit the child together in, in her womb. And as we know, I've said it many times, it's not her body. It's another person's body inside the womb. Not part of her body. Who says who has two who has two hearts? Who has, who has the lungs in their body? Who has that? No one has those kind of things. What human being has two stomachs, four eyes, two mouths, four ears, four sets of hands, four sets of feet? No human being has that. So it's not a part of her body. But yeah, the, when it comes to children, obviously, we believe that they're innocent in God's eyes. But, uh, you know, the assumption by atheists in that situation, like the flood, is that death is always bad. Well, death is only bad if you're a sinner. Death is not bad if you're innocent. Death is not bad if you're a Christian. Death is good. You get promoted to the next place. You, you can you escape all the, the wickedness of this world to deal with it any longer. So it's a good thing. But the assumption, the assumption is that, you know, for anyone to wipe any group of people out is wrong, which they have no reason to be able to say that. And secondly, that death is always wrong, which is not true. I look forward to death. I look forward to being promoted to the next place. I don't want to be in this place anymore. I think, you have another one? Question, John? I do. Just to add to what you were just saying about that, uh, Psalm 116.15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a home going. It's, it's great for us. It might it'd be sad for the people that are left here, but right. praise the Lord. Uh, we get to go be home with him. And he's, he's considering it precious. So mm -hmm. praise God. And uh, yeah. the uh, follow-on question I have doesn't have anything to do with the first question uh, is about uh, the being saved. You talked about initial salvation. You talked about uh, eternal salvation in the end. But the process of being saved is mentioned a few times in Scripture. Sorry, I tried to look it up. I couldn't find it. Uh, maybe you know where they are. Where it talks about being saved. So Yeah, we'll talk about that more next week. Okay. When we talk about probation. Um, today we're just mostly about the initial right. salvation. Right. And so we'll talk about the final salvation, probation, all in their own time. There's lots of Scriptures for both. And we'll see. You know, and being saved is actually probably a mistranslation of that. It's found in Hebrew. Hey, Josh. Um, well, I just wanted to say that the atheists can't even say that uh, wiping out whole groups of people is wrong because uh, if they agree with abortion, they're wiping out whole groups of people. So now That's an inconsistency, right? Mm -hmm. You're looking for those four things. Mm -hmm. Looking for preconditions. They don't have the preconditions to say anything's right or wrong. Um, you're looking for inconsistencies. You found one. Uh, you're looking for arbitrariness. I say this is right. I say this is wrong. And you're looking for consequence. What's the consequences? Well, if atheism is true, there's nothing that's right or wrong. So what's wrong with genocide? 
Human beings is survival of the fittest, right? Human beings can commit genocide of themselves all the time. What's wrong with that? Who are you to tell this guy who's got the might to say he's not right for killing other people? Just another animal, right? Who descended from the same uh, single-cell organism a long time ago there, Bell says. Anybody else? Right. Um, that's that's a beautiful verse, and uh, I remember looking at that before, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's the Greek word kategero. I think if, if, if I'm saying it correctly, but it has the connotation of uh, something being put out of business, yeah. and I, I like that that thought. It means you put it out of business. And uh, where you were in business for the devil, and he, he had set up shop in your life, and you were selling things, offering things, marketing things, and you put that shop out of business now. And right. burn that thing down to the ground and, and uh, tear it down. And now you're about your father's business, and he builds up his business in your life. You know? And uh, it's it's uh, father and sons, you know? It's, it's, it's our father and sons business. So, um, that's a beautiful verse there, brother, but I just had that thought uh, put out of business. So, amen. Yeah, and my my Bible has a footnote next to done away with, and it says, uh, uh, rendered inoperative. Amen. Amen. Rendered inoperative. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to what you just said there about being put out of business. Is any business implies work. And the Bible talks about the workers of iniquity. And uh, college campus uh, recently, I tested the waters on that. I said, who here understands what the word iniquity means? And uh, none of the students at this college, supposed to be a place of higher learning, understood what the word meant. But one, one person had the uh, intelligence to look it up on his phone. So he looked it up on his phone and found out what it meant. You know, it was lawlessness, it's uh, depravity, it's uh, uh, all these other words that were on there, but that's what iniquity means. So people that sin, it's not like uh, that uh, you're, you're born in sin, you're automatically a sinner that sin is just an automatic state of being. And you don't have to do anything to be in sin. But it's a business of working iniquity. It's a business of working lawlessness. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, um, let me see if I can find the exact verse. Let me see here. It's close to the end here. Um, okay. It's talking about the, the, the rest of God. This is the, uh, talking about the Sabbath. Um, you know, uh, how we enter into uh, God's rest. First time. What's that? First time. Verse 10, I think I was was really close to it. It says, uh, well, actually in verse 9 it says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he is that is entered into his rest. He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So we need to be put out of business. We need to cease from our working of lawlessness. Right. 
cease from our working of sin, and then we can enter into His rest. So actually, to stop sinning, it isn't work to stop sinning. It's a lack of work. Right. It's a surrender. This is when it's stopping something working. Right. If you stop working for sin, and you rest from working from sin, then, in the blood of Jesus Christ, you're made holy. Yep. So that's that's the whole initial salvation. Is we just have to lay down all of our work and say, you know what, I'm not going to do any more work for this world. Uh, and, and I'm not, you know, not in the natural sense, but in the spiritual sense. I'm not, not going to work for the devil. I'm not going to work for the enemy. I'm not going to work for my lust, my pride. I'm not going to work for lawlessness. I'm not going to work for that anymore. I'm just going to rest in Jesus. And that's that's initial salvation right there. Yeah, wages of sin is death. Oh, yeah, the wages of sin is death. Yeah, it's payment. Okay, we'll stop there. Next week I'll talk about probation.